But Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to have Wayne and Debbie come and read this passage to us. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the, jo- of the Jordan. And the multitudes gathered around him, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his family, shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thank you. Wayne and Debbie celebrated 43 years of marriage this last year. 46, excuse me, I shortchanged them. That's one of the reasons I asked them to read that text to you. You know, I really hate when pastors start messages uh, with a disclaimer. Uh, My disclaimer right now is not self-serving, though. The one that bugs me most is is if I were to get up right now and tell you, well, it's been a crazy week and there's a lot going on and really good things I had to do, but it pulled me away from my study time. And and a disclaimer like that tells you that if today stinks, if this bombs, that it's really not my fault and come back next week, I'm usually better than this. But I'll tell you, I worked really hard studying marriage. And so if this stinks and bombs, it's my fault. There's no excuse. My disclaimer, though, is as I've prepped for this and just kind of read through this and knew we were headed towards this topic of marriage, and of divorce. And really, I'll tell you, I think that Jesus' response to their question about divorce gives more instruction about marriage than it even does really uh, address divorce. So we'll spend a couple of weeks unpacking this together, talking about marriage. But as we've been approaching this, I I just want my disclaimer to be heard in in hearing my heart. And that's it. I've just, I've approached this with a heavy heart and deep sense of sensitivity, because I know for many who are part of our church family, uh, this is a subject that even to read about, there's a bit of a sting of in your life personally, because we have widows and we have widowers who are a part of our church, and we have others who have been through the heartbreak of, of a marriage that's come to an end, and we have others in our church who, they, they're single and they long for an opportunity to have a partner to experience and enjoy life together with, and so I've had really a, a heavy heart and a deep sense of care and concern this week. For those of you who maybe feel a deep sting, even as we begin to address the topic of marriage. And so I just want to tell you, as I've prayed this week, I've prayed for those of you who, who have been hurt or who are widowed or, or widowers. I've been praying for you that, that although these things will trigger memories, that they would not all be sad things, but they'd be sweet and joyful little memories that it bring back to mind as we discuss the topic of marriage. And I've prayed for others of you that if you've suffered through a divorce, that you would hear grace and hope and forgiveness and new life on the other side of that hard season and not condemnation today. And then for those of you who are single, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this helps you uh, to have hope and joy in your heart about your future, but also helps you to shape really what you're dreaming about when it comes to you looking at your future. 
The other thing I'll tell you is that I realize we are, I love this about our church, we're a multi-generational church, and so some of you, you've been married 46 years. For others, you've been married, we're counting in weeks. No, you've been married a month now, right? So we, we span a full, uh, wide gamut here, and so some of this information you might be hearing as more of a grandparent, yes, as a person in a marriage, but also as a grandparent who gets to speak into the lives of the generations beneath you and have influence in a lot of ways as you would take these things that scripture teaches us and then as you would repeat them to other people. And so I think this is very relevant to all of us. I'll even say for those of you who are younger, like even teenagers who are in here, I think your ear should be more attentive than anybody else because most of us, when it comes to how we approach things like this, we're trying now to untangle and detangle some of the mess that we built of compounding brokenness at times in a relationship, you instead get to approach it with some health if you'll learn some of these things that scripture teaches us about marriage that we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks. The other disclaimer I'll give you, and this is something Lindsay and I talked about in approaching this, man, I hate when pastors do this, but it's just to tell you that I'm not approaching this as an expert. And for Lindsay and I, we've had seasons that have been really difficult in our marriage and even seasons that felt hopeless uh, within our marriage. We've also had incredible seasons of life and joy and excitement and passion inside of our marriage, but we've experienced both realities. And so with humility, I approach these things as a practitioner, not as an expert. And even I'll tell you with humility that in seasons that were really hard for us, we pulled in uh, friends, we've pulled in people who functioned as mentors in our life and in our marriage. We've even gone to marriage and family therapists in order to get the support and help us untangle things. So we've, we've run the whole gamut of this. And like I said, we're practitioners. Uh, we are not at all experts in this. In fact, we're of the conviction that a good marriage is both a gift and an accomplishment. It's a gift that God gives, but it's something that you have to work for to protect and to nurture. And that's been our experience for sure. So don't, don't feel the vibe today that, well, Trevor up there, you know, so full of himself and thinking he's got it all figured out. Uh, not at all. Um, so here's my request to you. If you're married, let the Holy Spirit nudge your spouse over the next couple of weeks as we talk about this topic of marriage. Let him do that. He's better at it and it, it bugs their ribs and irritates them less when he does it. And hear this as a person individually. Uh, my second request is that if I offend you, it's possible that I will, and maybe some of that will be something that Jesus says, or maybe it's just my carelessness with my speech that I'm not clear on something. I'd ask that you'd at least speak to me. Uh, and so shoot me an email. My email is trevor at olivebranchcf.org. So if I come across in such a way that bothers you, Let's chat. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to briefly discuss the trap that's set for Jesus here. I also then want to talk to you about what scripture teaches about the topic of divorce, but then we're going to step into the topic of marriage together and what the original story of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife from Genesis teaches us about marriage. So those three things, the trap, the idea, and the teaching about divorce, and then what scripture teaches us right from the beginning about marriage. And we'll just briefly touch on that piece because we'll revisit this a few times. So first, the trap, because that's what this passage tells us is happening here, that they came to trick and trap Jesus. So I don't want to just hijack the text from the context. We need to first look at why this is all happening to Jesus in this moment. What, what Jesus teaches here, even about marriage and divorce, we need to first address why he even went there. And there's there's a part of our narrative that you're probably familiar with if you've been with us as we walked through Mark's gospel, and that's that there's a moment in time where two or three, four chapters earlier, I believe it's in chapter six, 
we're introduced to a, a bleak moment in the story and life of Jesus where a dear friend of his, his own cousin, John the Baptist, ends up being beheaded, and you might remember why he was beheaded. He was beheaded because he spoke up about this very issue, right? He told Herod that, and his wife that their relationship was immoral and that her divorce was unbiblical, and so their relationship, the very foundation of it, was corrupted. He called them out publicly, and so in the end, what happens to John the Baptist? Well, he's beheaded, and so the trap that's being set for Jesus here is they're baiting him publicly so that now Herod will step in and do for them what they'd like to do to Jesus, that they'll bring an end to Jesus' life. And Jesus is wise to this, and that's why there's a difference between the explanation he will give publicly and then the private explanation that's far more direct that he gives to his disciples. Did you notice that two different shifts, the shift that takes place in the story, where in verse 10 it says, now when they get into the house. Now Jesus doesn't dodge answering the question. What he does, though, is he takes their attention back to the scriptures and what the scriptures say. So if their argument is with anyone, it's with the book. There's wisdom in this. We're still put in situations, if you're a follower of Jesus in the 21st century, especially issues about marriage, divorce, sex, sexuality, where you're pushed against the wall and people are trying to trick and trap you, where it is this... This is the the OG like uh, cancel culture standoff that's happening here where they're looking for a reason just to discard Jesus. I think it's wise when we know someone's coming with that kind of an aggressive stance that we send them the direction of scripture where Jesus even answers them with a question. I think we're wise to do the same thing. The truth is still clear, but their issue is not with me, the person. It's with what God says about the topic. And so what Jesus does is he responds by saying, well, what did Moses command to you? What do you find in Moses' writings? Now, what you find in Moses' writings, it's believed that he wrote the first five books. He's credited for the first five books of the Old Testament. What Moses writes about marriage is what's found in the book of Genesis. And so Jesus points their attention back there. Now, did you catch what he said was, what's Moses' command? What did they say? They respond with what Moses permitted. Jesus says, what did he command? They respond with what he permitted. And it says, verse 5, that Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote that precept. Or another translation says, but Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Or still another translation, the Amplified Bible says, but Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, your own callousness and insensitivity towards your wives and the provision of God, he wrote you this precept. You see, in ancient times, in every other culture that we know about, when it came to marriage and divorce specifically, divorce was not a judgment that was decided by a court of law. It was just an independent action taken by a husband against his wife. And so that culture around God's people seems to have permeated them, and it's destroying the very foundation of what God created as a lifelong union. And now their marriages are beginning to reflect more like what it looks to be not a part of the family of God, but outside the household of faith. This God-instituted lifelong bond that was not to be separated has become super trivial within the nation of Israel, just as trivial as it was outside the house of God. Historians even write about this. The guy Josephus, I quote to you often, he's a Jewish man, an observer of the law, and he talks about how he discarded his second wife simply because she no longer pleased him, that she just threw her aside. And so that's the culture Jesus is addressing here. Knowing that it's a trap, though, he points their attention back towards the text itself, 
And so the trap that's set for Jesus is they're trying to have done to Jesus what happened to John the Baptist. So that's the trap. Here's the second thing, though. We're just moving through these first two rather quickly to get to the topic of marriage, because I think that's the point of this dialogue being recorded with or for us. So that's the trap. But the second thing that we should discuss is what the scripture actually teaches about divorce. And God's design for marriage was always for one man and one woman to have a lifelong commitment to each other. And really the beauty, when you think about it, of what God gave as a gift to Adam and Eve that was experienced by them together with God in the garden was something he gave before sin entered God's good world. Now think on the contrast between them and us outside of the garden. On this side of the garden, our experience looks very different than theirs would have as they experienced a union, a seamless, perfect, sinless union together with the two of them and God walking by their side looks very different than it does for us on this side of the garden because every experience since the garden has been a real struggle. Since sin entered the world, sin entered God's good world, every bit of our experience is a struggle. Even a marriage since then gets just a, just a little taste, little bits of the joys that were designed and created to be experienced in a marriage. Every marriage now on this side of the garden deeply struggles because it's now two imperfect people having their imperfections rub up and agitate each other, be agitated by their spouse's imperfections. That's a totally different experience than what God initially gave to Adam and Eve. His original design didn't even need to address the possibility of divorce because it's two perfect people who are paired together, sinless people, I should say, selfless people who are paired together and beautifully complement and complete each other even. But sin entered the world and dramatically changed all of that. Now, now here's what I'll tell you. Scripture says very directly about divorce. It tells you in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. It doesn't say he hates divorcees, but he hates divorce, the breaking of the bond that's built between a husband and a wife. And I'll tell you, I think a part of that is because it distorts the imagery that God intends a marriage to portray to the world. And that imagery, spoiler alert, because we'll get there later, the imagery is that in the same way that God created man in his own image, he created a marriage in the image of his intended union with humanity. And so this so distorts it then when there's a breaking of that because God's bond and his commitments to creation is something that would not be broken. The only thing that would be broken would be his own life in order to reunite himself with his family, with even scriptural language, with his bride again. Remember that he becomes the bridegroom. I think one of the reasons God hates divorce Again, not divorcees, but divorce is because it so distorts the imagery that it's intended to portray to us. The other reason is it just, it's so, so destructive. It's so painful for people to walk through a season of divorce, to, to experience that. And I think that's why God stands in such opposition to it. And so think about this. After the garden experience, once sin has entered the world, Moses is now in in the, the books that he writes, he begins to speak up specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 24. He speaks up in response to people. Think of this, in response to people who are already breaking their marriage covenants. They're divorcing each other. And he's saying then, he speaks up Deuteronomy 22 and 24, that only in the cases of infidelity is a partner released from their marriage vow. 
And in those moments, he says you need to give them a certificate of divorce because what they were previously doing was just throwing and discarding them out onto the streets. They're not just a marriage certificate. No, they were throwing and discarding their spouse, specifically their wives. So when Moses speaks up and does this, this protects the sanctity of marriage because it highlights and underlines the fact that it was a covenant, a legally binding agreement, and that that's not easily just discarded and tossed to the side. But the other thing that Moses is doing here is he's protecting women. Some of us read this through a lens of going, great, now it's just this whole male domineering society that's all of a sudden now empowered to just have men give away divorce slips. No, it's trying to slow men down. It's trying to protect women who otherwise had a husband that would just say, I'm done with you, divorce them, and push them out on the street on a whim. In fact, in Jesus' day, the Mishnah records uh, the writings and teachings and debates that took place between rabbis uh, from a century before Jesus until two centuries after Jesus. There's a conversation, a debate that happens between two rabbis that the Mishnah records for us that happened a generation before Jesus. These are contemporaries, though, that end up living their lives while Jesus is alive, track with me. And when they start talking about what's a certifiable reason for divorce, one guy says, if my wife burns a meal, and the other guy says, if I just no longer find her to be the fairest, but I find someone who is more fair, more beautiful, more lovely than her, then that alone is a reason for me to divorce them. So this is the culture Jesus is now being confronted with, and he is responding to it. Now, think then about what is written in Deuteronomy. It's protecting women. Even in the event that there was a divorce, a woman would be in over her head after the fact, where she'd struggle to meet her own needs if she was pushed out on the streets, and she'd also find herself potentially in severe danger because she could be marked as a runaway adulteress or even a prostitute. And she could be never, never be married again if that was the case, if that's how she was marked. She'd never be able to provide for herself. She could be falsely accused and even punished. And so this was a way you have to give a certificate of divorce only in a situation where infidelity takes place. This was a way that was protecting these women who were just being discarded. Listen, hear me. Although divorce was allowed in Scripture, divorce has never been God's intention. And be clear, even in cases of infidelity, this was not what God commanded. If someone's unfaithful, this is what you do. This is just something that God allows. It's a concession in moments like that. Now, if you know your Bible, you know in the New Testament that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul will write the church and add to this saying, if you are a believing follower of Jesus and you have an unbelieving, God-rejecting spouse and they abandon you, they move away, they leave the house. This is not emotional abandonment. This is true in every way, abandonment. They're gone because you chose to follow Jesus. They now want nothing to do with you. If that happens in your abandon, Paul says you've been released from your marriage vow and that covenant. So infidelity in a marriage, and then if your spouse who doesn't follow Jesus abandons you in those situations, divorce is not commanded, but it is allowed. It's permissible. Now, track with me. If if those are the only scriptural reasons why your Bible says that divorce is permitted, does that mean that a woman who is physically or even verbally abused, that, that she lives married to someone who does that, treats her that way and her children that way, does that mean she stays in the home? Well, no, it means that she can still leave the home and they can still seek reconciliation. They can separate. For, it doesn't mean that you just have to be someone's punching bag. But it's saying that we don't just give up on our marriages. We don't just bail out. It doesn't mean anyone is required to stay and be abused, but it's talking about severing the vow 
which is killing an entity. It's not just breaking a promise. Remember, the two become one flesh. There's a death that takes place. That's what's sobering about divorce. So if a vulnerable woman and her children, are, are they in an abusive situation? Are they forced to stay in it? Well, no, they can separate for a time, work with the mediator, and get the help with, that's needed with the goal of reconciliation. Okay, but if these are the only things that God says are okay and permissible, if someone needs to end their marriage vow and their commitment, their covenant together, well, does it mean then that God can't whisper in my ear my own personal reason why it's okay for me personally to leave my spouse? Well, clearly the, the answer to that is, well, yes, it means that that can't happen because God has already spoken very clearly about what is okay and not okay. Okay, now track with me. So when Jesus then speaks up from the book of Genesis, he makes it clear that the bond of a husband and wife, that what it creates is more than just a partnership, what he says is, is that it's more than just a working agreement. He says it creates a whole new entity, that the two become one flesh. If that's true, then, then the choice to divorce is more than just a simple legal choice to bring an end to an agreement. It results in the death of an entity. Now think about this. If that's true, how many of us have sat with someone on the other side of a divorce or even on the other side of infidelity in their marriage, and when they describe what it was like to endure it, they use the word death, that they feel like a part of them died in that process. Well, it's because it's what scripture tells us and teaches us that it is not just the end of an agreement, it's the death of an entity. So, so please hear me. I do wanna tell you this, I've begun to see over the years that there is something unique that scripture says about because of the hardness of their hearts, God gave them this allowance that they could end a divorce in a case of sexual immorality. Scripture does not say because of their stiff necks. Okay, think of that. Because of their stiff necks. That's the rebellion in the Old Testament, their rebellious hearts, their unwillingness to yield. Sometimes in scripture when it talks about the hardness of heart, it's comparing it to a heart that's soft and pliable. I think that sometimes infidelity so shakes and rattles and is so destructive to someone's heart that for them to step forward in vulnerability again feels impossible. To soften their heart again feels like it's something that can't happen. And so I think in moments like that, that what you hear is not God frustrated like, fine, I'll give you a break, you can leave. I think you hear the heart of a father who knows just how painful it is for people in moments like that to re-engage their heart in vulnerability. And so even the tone of this, I hear very different now after living some life and walking with some people through some of those situations. Now, now hear me say this. If you've been through a divorce, you need to hear this. I'm sorry for the hurt that it's inevitably caused you. Like I'm I'm sure this was a, a terrible and difficult process to walk through. And just hear me say, you're welcome here if that's your story, and you belong here, and you're not a second-class citizen here by any stretch, and you're forgiven and whole in Jesus. And because of that, you're no different than the rest of us. There's forgiveness and there's grace in Jesus. So don't leave here feeling condemned or like you've been set into a separate class, separate from maybe some of the rest of us. That's not the case. So that's the trap. That's what the scriptures teach on divorce. But here's the other thing that I'm really excited to begin to scratch the surface on. And I told my wife this morning, I am in big trouble. 
uh, because there's so much to say. So this will be a few weeks. Uh, and I won't keep you too long, I promise you, but we'll do this over the course of a few weeks. It's funny, as I told her that, she said, yeah, I forgot to tell you, someone told me the other day that they know when you say, like, we're going to land this plane, that it typically means, like, in about 10 minutes, you'll wrap up, and, and I told her, well, yeah, haven't you ever been on an airplane on final approach? It's not, it's not very thoughtful of people if you don't give them the time to use the restroom and, you know, to get what they need out of the overhead compartment stuff before you land the plane, so I can't just land it right away. Uh, so I will do my best, though, to land the plane in a timely manner. But I want to talk to you about what Jesus' affirmation of what the book of Genesis says about marriage when God instituted it. I want to show you what it demonstrates to us, what it teaches us about God's design for marriage. And I'll tell you, I think marriage is something that God absolutely loves. I mean, think about this. Marriage is not just something that God created and instituted as a gift to the first humans that walked the earth when God himself walked the earth. Think that he went, remember that he went to celebrate the gift and blessing of a marriage. In fact, his first miracle was at a wedding. Think about it. Your Bible begins and ends with a marriage even. And your Bible is chock full of instruction about the topic of marriage. And we'll look at some of those passages in the future, in the coming weeks. But today I just want to look at where marriage originated. I want to look at the origin of marriage because the scene that Jesus points to back in Genesis chapter 2 in the garden it tells us both important and really powerful things that we need to grab onto. And maybe just today for you, it's just a reminder, or maybe it's a challenge, but we need to look at these things together. And as you might guess, these things are they're counterintuitive, and they are countercultural. A number of years ago, I, I got on the phone with a friend that I went to high school with. And as we started chatting and catching up, I asked him about his longtime girlfriend. It's a girl that also went to high school with us. And they'd been dating at that point for about 10 years. And, and so as we started talking about it, I asked him, uh, you know, why, why is it? Like, what's the deal? Why aren't you married? And he responded and said, well, she won't say yes. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. Um, his response, he's not a follower of Jesus. His response was, I don't need some stupid piece of paper to validate my love. That we don't need that. That's beneath us. Like, what an archaic idea that that's what we need to validate the special thing that we have. Now, the reason that many of you just made a noise, the, the little groan with it, is because this is not unique to my friend. This is a prevalent thought in our culture. But think about what this mentality explains and expresses to us about the culture's definition of love itself. It's telling you that love is this internal feeling and so, no, if that's what love is, you don't need anyone outside of yourself to validate what you find already inside of yourself, if it's just a feeling. But the Bible will define love so very differently all throughout the Bible that it's not just exclusively an internal feeling, but it is an external action. In fact, the world looks and says it's an internal feeling that sure will lead to external action, and your Bible says it the opposite. No, love is an external commitment to action, that you will love somebody, that you'll do that with action. And the Bible teaches that your heart will follow in suit, that your emotions internally, that that will follow the action. Remember, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whether that's your time or whether that's your resources, as you give things that are valuable to something, your heart gets connected to it. And that is especially true of another human being, another person. My friend was defining a marriage is absolutely useless because for him and his partner, they don't need anyone to validate or substantiate their feelings until 
a couple months later, he called me back and said, you know, I was looking at my taxes because it's the end of the year now and thinking ahead to next year, and the IRS needs to validate our love. And if the IRS doesn't, we're going to get hit really hard at tax season, so I've decided to ask her to marry me. And I told my friend, um, I think that's wise. You should get married. I don't think that should be involved in the moment where you get on a knee and ask her uh, to marry you. So hopefully he left that out, and they are married, and that's great. But think about what the Bible makes clear in contrast to that mentality. That love that's found in a marriage is a covenantal, it's a covenant, a covenantal commitment to give love. Which means that a marriage is not merely the expression or the response to love. Marriage is the promise of future love. That's very different. Our world looks and says, fine, if we need to express it and prove it to the rest of you, then we'll express our love by getting married. But that's not it at all. Marriage is a covenantal agreement, a promise of future love. So wedding vows then become not your chance to tell everybody who's come, this is why I love you so much today. A wedding vow is you promising in front of all those people what you are committing to do into the tomorrow, into the future. And in our modern world, rings become a reminder of that. Thankfully, we're not like ancient times where they would take a bunch of animals, cut them in half anytime someone made a covenant, and then you do this figure eight shape through the bloody entrails of all these animals in order to make a demonstration and say, basically, if I break my vows, then God do to me what has been done to them. And this happy romantic moment happens. Uh, I'm thankful, PETA, as as well, that we don't do that. Uh, but we exchange rings. And and my ring is not just a reminder that, that Lindsay loved me on December the 8th of 2006, almost 15 years ago. My ring reminds me that she's promising to love me today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's a promise of future love. And the idea comes right out of this Genesis narrative. If you look in Mark chapter 10, verse 7, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, or if you have an old King James version, cleave to his wife. This introduces us to the real foundation. So here it is. Here's what we're going to talk through real quick. The foundation of a marriage. What is the foundation of the marriage? The first thing I want you to notice from this text in Genesis is that the foundation of a marriage is a covenant. It's not an expression of this is how I feel and fine, if you need me to validate my love, then here's what I'll do. No, no, no. This is what makes a marriage. The foundation of a marriage is a covenant to be joined to someone, to cleave to them. It's a covenantal term that's used here. It means to be bound in a covenant to a person. Now, this is not a term we use much in the 21st century, the word covenant. The simple def definition just means a binding agreement. It is a public promise between two or more parties to do something or be joined together for the cause of something. So whether it's on a ship with the captain or at the courthouse with the justice of the peace or with a priest or a pastor presiding over that moment, the covenant is what makes a marriage a marriage, the public promise of something between two people. So think back to my conversation with my friend. My friend is defining love as more like a virus. It's something you catch. Or more like a, a sinkhole or pit, it's something you fall into. And neither of those concepts or those images communicate any intent or even control. And because they don't communicate intent or control, and if that's how you define love, then that is a terrifying thing to step into. 
to step into a marriage, which is a promise of love. I can understand then if that's how you think of love, that that is a scary proposition to be married. But if love is more than that, if it's a mutual commitment to engage with action, even with, even, even if, even when my heart feels disengaged, because I'm believing that as I engage, my heart will follow and re-engage, then if that's how I view it, then that is a safe and wonderful place to enter into. Not a scary and shaky foundation place at all. So why does this matter? That marriage at the very foundation is a covenant. Well, it matters because so many people that we know, they look at us and say, I'm ready to end my marriage because I just don't feel in love anymore. Because we together fell out of love together. It matters because it's not just other people, but we can catch ourselves in our self-talk even in moments where we're entertaining those kinds of internal dialogues. Those thoughts and possibilities where we're saying, I just don't know that this is going to work because I don't feel in love with them anymore because I feel like we've fallen out of love. If that's the internal talk we're having, we have to stop ourselves and realize it's revealing a terrible misconception about the very foundation of what a marriage is. Because at its foundation, it's a covenant. This is going to totally de-romanticize it. Well, I'll make up for that later. The same wording and instruction is given to a husband to love their wives as is given to a person in loving their enemies. A person who has an enemy, scripture says, you are to choose to love them. A husband with a wife, a wife with a husband, that you are to choose to love them. The instruction for both is that they are to love them because biblical love is about choice first and feelings that follow. So a failure in a marriage that's explained as I don't feel love for them anymore, I fell out of love for them, shows, I think, just a, a tragic misunderstanding of the very foundation of what love is, or I'm sorry, what a marriage is. So hear me, the foundation of covenantal love that you and I are to embrace is a willingness to put someone else's needs ahead of my own. It's not a feeling that will lead me, Trevor, into an action. Like, I feel so in love with Lindsay, and so now I'm going to selflessly serve her. If it was that, after a period of time that goes by in your marriage, and it's been different for all of us, for some maybe it was a couple of years, for the rest of us maybe it was just weeks, where all of a sudden we're sitting around now just waiting to feel something again. And once we feel something again, then it re-engages our heart and we jump back into action, if that's all that it is. But it's not that. It's a promise of action in spite of feelings because it believes that the feelings will follow those actions. And I'll just tell you personally, in the we're 15 years into our marriage. In my mind, that's not much to brag about. I'd like to think we're about a quarter of the way into our marriage. That's my thinking. But early in our marriage, when my heart felt full of emotions for Lindsay is when I was really thoughtful. That's the gifts, the cards, uh, the just because flowers. That's when she would say, yeah, that's when, when we were doing well. And then when we were, you know, in those stretches where you're frustrated with each other, you're nitpicky or whatever else, those were the times that those dried up. I'll tell you now at this stage in our marriage, it's kind of flip-flopped. I'd like to think that I don't completely not do those things when we're doing well. But what I've learned is that in the moments where 
we're struggling or we're frustrated and nitpicky with each other, that's where I have to engage, re-engage with action in order to get my heart to follow. So I would say, and she would probably agree, that I am most thoughtful when we're in a frustrated stretch rather than in just a lighthearted, joyful stretch because I really believe this principle that my feelings will follow my action because where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. So here's where I try to not completely de-romanticize the whole thing is that no doubt for all of us, we want to commit our life and our love to someone that we do have a spark with or attraction with. What I'm trying to make clear is what Scripture's teaching us here about a covenant is telling us that it's not just that, though. It's not just a spark and attraction that are meant to be the foundation of a marriage. It's a public promise of future love and future faithfulness. That's the foundation. So the second thing this teaches us, the foundation of a marriage is a covenant. The second thing it teaches us is that the priority of marriage is that we reorder our loves. The foundation is a covenant, but the priority is that we reorder our loves. Look again at what Jesus quotes here from the book of Genesis. But from, verse 6, the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave. This is a reprioritizing of things. Leave his father and mother and be joined, remember that's the covenantal agreement, to his bride, and the two together shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but now they are one flesh. There has to be a departure, a leaving. That's what scripture teaches us right from the beginning about this topic, this gift of marriage. Now, for us in a modern American culture, we celebrate independence both as a country but also for individuals. It's expected, an expected progression for our children to grow and to become independent, to go off and live their own lives. It's not just expected, we celebrate that as a culture. But scripture, still today, even in the 21st century, is terribly offensive to people who live in cultures who don't feel that way about independence. As they read these things, they choke on the idea of leaving father and mother. But as many of us find out, once we get married, even inside our American households that supposedly celebrate these things like independence, that celebrates our children growing up and going off and being their own adults and having their own families. We've Some of us have experienced that their family of origin, though, is slow to warm up to the idea that someone else is taking over the, the place of prominence that mom and dad once held in, in their child's life. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because we're a multi-generational church. So we'll play the game instead of let's talk about how we all have a friend who... We all know someone who, not us, someone else, whose family of origin still has unrealistic expectations of them about the amount of time that their adult children will still spend with them or the amount of money that their adult children will still spend on them or the amount of things that their adult children will do the same thing as them, will handle the same way as they did. We all have experiences to one degree or another of that. Lindsay and I, over the years, especially because I was working with young adults for a stretch of time, we did a lot of pre-marriage counseling with young couples. And a lot of that I tried to do with Lindsay because, because it, it can be really idealistic for me just to sit with someone and say, here's how marriage is supposed to look, and her not be present in the room to like hit the BS button and be like, yeah, that's cute. Nope, not in my house. Like, 
So it's always important to me that we did these things together. This topic was what we spent the majority of our time unpacking with young couples because I think this is so very important. The priority in marriage is that we have to reorder our loves and our level of commitment in every area of our life. It's something we'd spend time developing and opening up with couples because a big piece of that is we have to discuss what it's like to leave something. What's involved in leaving your family of origin Something that for us as a couple, Lindsay and I, no one ever talked us through these concepts at all. The other piece of this is not just that we reorder these things, we leave, but then because this becomes, my marriage becomes my new priority, then protecting that new entity is something that's incredibly important. So think with me, what does it mean in our modern setting to leave your family of origin? And here's my disclaimer, this will look different for all of us. It's not the same for all of us. And for most of us, we need our family support. We just have to balance it with a good boundary in place when it comes to our family. Some will even need our family support when it comes to housing. And again, I think that's okay. It's going to look different for all of us. We just have to balance it with having boundaries in place. But we ought to leave, think about this, we ought to leave relationally. If we're going to leave in order to cleave, and this is reprioritizing my life and putting my marriage at the top with the foundation being that we've made a commitment, a vow, a covenant to each other, then we leave relationally. It does not mean that I cut off my relationships with my parents. It, however, does mean very clearly that I reprioritize them and my parents now slide in behind my marriage. It also means we leave emotionally, that my emotional support, the main source of it, can no longer be my parents, especially if I need emotional support in my marriage because we hit a rough patch, and now I'm going to my parents and unloading on them, and they're going to be prone to take my side because they love me, and they can't imagine an imperfect being coming from them, and so it has to be the imperfect being coming from those people. And then they're not present in the moments where I come back to Lindsay and grovel and with humility tell her, I really blew it and shouldn't have handled it that way. They're not present in that moment. So the next time we're together and they say, pass the gravy, I pass it to them and they're looking at me like this. So we have to leave not just, I think, relationally, but even emotionally. We have to be very careful that our main support, emotional support, is not coming from them, especially when it comes to emotional support that will be needed in our marriage. I think even financially. That we have to leave financially. We do not forsake the needs of our parents. Jesus previously in Mark's gospel has rebuked people who did that. But it does mean that we reprioritize so that the needs of my own household now take front and center above any other thing. We leave relationally, emotionally, financially. I think even for many of us, it means geographically. But the goal of all of that, track with me, here's the point. The goal of all of that is we have to leave ideologically. We have to leave our family of origin, and this is what I wish someone would have talked to Lindsay and I about and would have worked us through, is that when I leave in all these other areas, the goal is that I am leaving psychologically, I am leaving ideologically, that our home and family, without us ever being aware of it, for each of us, it created a culture and a standard of what we think of as normal and acceptable and even what we expect from each other. Now think about this. We're like getting deep into some things here that are like, I don't know why you're talking about psychology. We're, we're really not. We're talking about what it says here, that this is how God instituted a marriage, that they would leave and cleave, that there's a covenantal agreement. That's the foundation. But a reprioritization, that is the priority of your marriage that you have to leave. 
And a part of that leaving is that we have to recognize that we have been in a home that has created an expectation in us of what's normal and right and acceptable, and we ought to take the time to recognize what those expectations then are, what those standards and practices are, and then we have to choose to be willing to do something with them, to release our new life and our partner from those expectations so that we together can then create our own culture inside of our new family. To leave father and mother means that I recognize this is what it looked like in my home, and if I carry those expectations in, I'm going to crush them because their home looked different. Because every home, every family of origin is going to look different. Here, here, let me just give you a really practical example of what I mean by that. In my family growing up, my dad took care of everything outside of the house. That's the yard. My mom took care of everything inside of the house. Now, here's what I'll tell you about that. That was never spoken. I never remember hearing that spoken, but it was clearly understood. That's how my family functioned. Dad takes care of everything outside of the house. Mom takes care of everything inside of the house. Another just cultural piece inside my family is that dishes left in a sink overnight is something cavemen do. Like knuckle-dragging mouth breathers leave dishes in the sink overnight because it's disgusting and no one does that anymore. As goofy and silly as that is, Lindsay and I get married. I see in her an expectation on me to help with the dishes and to clean up the kitchen. And all of a sudden, I'm going, well, hang on. What is she, what is she saying about me? Hang on a second. What does she not love enough about me that she wouldn't be willing to do her part because I'm clearly doing my part and this is the agreement we had. I thought we loved each other. And the fact that she left dishes in the sink overnight, I was like, she must want a divorce. This is it. This is how she tells me. She's done with me. If I'm carrying those sorts of pieces in, I needed to slow down and recognize it, then my option is I can either demand, Lindsay, this is how it's going to be in my house, or I could recognize it, you laugh, because you know it wouldn't work well. Uh, or I can recognize it and set it down and say, Linz, in my home growing up, this is how we did things. We don't have to do it this way, but I'm starting to realize that this is why it rubs me the wrong way, or this is why it pushes me into insecurity. Okay, take another example. A young couple we sat with, they'd only been married a couple of weeks, just come back from their honeymoon, and the guy calls me and he's really emotional. I go, oh my gosh, what happened? Thinking worst case scenario, his wife has died or something, and he says, she left again. I'm like, what do you mean she left again? We had another disagreement. Without a word, she grabbed the keys, she got in the car, and she drove away. Now, her family of origin, this is how they dealt with conflict. Mom or dad, their way of expressing love to each other is, I'm not just going to lash out at you. I'm grabbing the keys. Bye-bye. I'll be back after a while. Without a word, they'd leave. They'd circle back after about an hour. They'd sit together when cooler heads prevailed, and they'd work through things. His family was not that way. So every time she grabbed the keys and left, he's like, this is it. It's been three weeks. We had a good run. Like, For her, she thought, this is how I'm going to express love to him, is I'm going to show him that more than my anger, what matters to me is you, so I'm leaving. And for him, he's like, more than anything else, I don't want you to leave anymore. Because it leaves me in this bed of insecurity, sitting here waiting to see what's going to happen next. We have to be willing to leave. And some of that is just ideologically realizing that these were things that were cultural pieces in our family of origin that were willing to stop and say, I can leave that here and not carry that with me. I think this is true in a negative sense, too. And here's what I've learned in my own life. Is in a negative sense, 
if my driving force is I will not recreate that. No, I'm not carrying it in as an expectation. I'm looking at it going, I don't even like that. In fact, I despise it. I'm not recreating that. We'll never create their messiness. Can I tell you, even if you accomplish that goal, it doesn't mean you've created health. It's just you haven't recreated their form of brokenness. If I got my own forms, <laughs> what I've learned is that I'm still under the power and haven't yet left my family of origin, if that's how I function. That they still have tremendous power over me, maybe even more power than an expectation that goes, I thought you did the inside, I did the outside, when instead it's we will not do this. We will not become this. I still, if, I'm, if I've got that kind of angst and drive in my life, then it demonstrates that I'm still not out from under their power and influence, that I still have not truly left until I'm really freed from these things. To leave your father and mother is speaking of your commitment to reorient, to reprioritize your life around this new covenant that you've entered with your spouse. This has to be your new top priority, second only, and we'll get to this next week in Ephesians, to your commitment to Jesus. Because that will be the source of power for you to live selflessly. I don't know how people do this without knowing Jesus. Because he doesn't just give me good principles, but gosh, he gives me amazing grace and power to be the kind of person he desires to me, me to be. He gives me so much forgiveness that it enables me to forgive and keep a short records of wrong. It enables Lindsay to forgive me and be gracious with me, even in spite of all of my flaws and imperfections. I do not know how people do this void of the gospel's power at work in their lives. So we're out of time, so here's what I'll do. I'm not going to land the plane. Uh, I'll tell you what the other piece is that we'll pick up with next week. The foundation is a covenant. And when I catch myself, even if it's just internally, whining about how my, parent, my, my own marriage is not, it's not making me happy as it should be, I have to stop in moments like that and remind myself that this is a covenant about choosing selfless love, not about requiring something from someone else. The foundation is a covenant. The priority of marriage is that I reorder my loves, that I leave something. And for many of you who have been married very many years, it is something you could ask your spouse about, about your priorities and the way that they see them, but it's also a way I think you can help young couples who are trying to navigate this adjustment of a new marriage. But here's where we'll pick up next week, and I'll just give you a little teaser of it, and that's the purpose of marriage. And we need to know this. What's the purpose of marriage? Well, the purpose of marriage is companionship and completeness. But when God designed Adam pre-fall, think about this, when God designed Adam pre-fall, there were intentional design deficiencies. God intentionally designed him with deficiencies so that Adam would come to a moment of realization that there was no helpmate comparable, compatible to him, that he recognized a lack in his life. Before the fall, God designed him with deficiencies before sin entered creation and marred it so God then will step in and make a helper comparable, or some translations say compatible, or complementative, or a counterpart. Some scholars will even say as an opposite to him, which is a minefield to walk into, but we'll walk through it together. What does it mean, though, for us? The purpose of a marriage. If God's designed me with deficiencies, as a man, and then as a woman, a counterpiece to that, on the other side of the fall, we will never complete each other. 
we'll crush each other under that weight of expectation. But one thing we do complete is a clearer depiction of the image of God. Because he made them, both male and female, both in the image of God, he created them. But with deficiencies on either side. For Adam and Eve in the garden, I'd like to think that they fit together like a little charm necklace, two pieces that are broken in half. You know, the little heart that's broken and two friends wear it and piece it back together. I'd like to think that for each other, that in the garden, when they were selfless and sinless, that that's how they functioned as a team, that they completed each other. Now, I'm convinced because I live in a marriage that that doesn't happen anymore, that we don't complete each other. And if I have that expectation that Lindsay completes me, I crush her. I do think that we complement each other and we grow, but I think what we do better complete together than we ever could separate from each other is we create a clearer picture and depiction of the image of God for the world to look on at. Think about this. If that's true and if that's part of the meaning of marriage is completeness when it comes to the image of God, then marriage is not the end it's the means to an end. It's not the end in that this is it and this is what will make you happy. You think that and then you're like, well, maybe kids will. And then you're like, nope, <laughs> that was not, not it. It's a means to an end. See, here's the problem. For many of us, we're disappointed in our marriage and maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't ended it, you haven't divorced, but maybe you've disengaged because Maybe you do view it as the end, and because it's not giving you what you were hoping it would give you, hope and joy and peace and life and, and so much where they would complete you, because it doesn't give you that, you disengage and step back. But I think it's because of a misunderstanding that marriage is not the end, it's a means to an end. It's a gift and a blessing for sure. But it's a means to an end, and the end is creating a better, clearer picture of the nature of the character of God together than we ever could have separately. The end is that as my imperfection rubs against her imperfection, as I allow God to use this marriage as a tool and not just see it as a gift that completes me, but use it even as a tool in my life, then it reshapes my life more into the image of Jesus. And so if I give up on my marriage, not just by divorce, but by disengaging, then I'm giving up on that. I'm giving up on God's means of reshaping my life. It doesn't just completely, complete me. Sometimes my marriage deconstructs me. It strips me of so much to reveal what's really there and what's there is brokenness. And then in my marriage, I find safety and love and care and affirmation. And that's what God begins to express in that safe space so that he then can rebuild me more into the image of his son. Marriage is not the end, it's a means to an end. And if we give up either through divorce or just through disengagement in our home, in our marriage, then we've given up on something more than just a commitment and covenant to that partner. We've given up on the work of God at work in our lives. There's one other piece to a marriage that's really beautiful, and it's that marriage is a mystery because marriage is this amazing image of our relationship with God himself. That we get a taste of what it's like to be known and loved in a relationship, though imperfect it may be, that it creates a little taste and foreshadow of what it will be like to be with him and known and loved completely by him. See, Christ is like a groom 
in his commitment to his bride. But he's also like a groom in his excitement in rejoicing over his bride. The prophet Isaiah would say, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so our God rejoices over you. You see, we've talked about marriage, but marriage is a metaphor. If God made man in his image, he made marriage as an image, in the image of his intended union with you, with you as a person, where he, the perfect bridegroom, would initiate his relationship with you with incredibly profound, an incredibly profound expression of love. It wasn't just a feeling, it was an action. We love because he first loved us and he demonstrated that love by going to a cross for us. So he becomes the perfect bridegroom with self-sacrificial love that he would exemplify. And we then as his bride, in all his vulnerability, he offers himself to us. We then as his bride respond to our perfect bridegroom in the safe place that is a union with him. A union with him that he says he'd never leave or forsake, but he'd only say that because he would be forsaken. He could only make it possible for us to enter into a union like that because he would cry out on a cross, my God, my God, why has it been severed? Why is it broken? Why have you forsaken me? So that we then hear a promise that nothing ever will stand between us and him. Nothing will separate us from his love. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So Jesus, as we prepare our hearts now to receive of communion and celebrate Jesus, your great love for us, we remember not just the gift of marriage, but we remember the image, the mystery of marriage, that Jesus, it takes our minds towards you. Jesus, today we think of you, our bridegroom. And so Jesus, we pause just to reflect and remember before we partake.